1: is my partner narcissistic? And I'm thinking, you're asking the wrong question. You've really got to stay focused on these behaviors because if these behaviors are consistently showing up, it doesn't matter what they are. Ultimately, these behaviors are what's going to harm you. And their personality is a statement on the fact that these behaviors are going to remain consistent.
0: You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 585 with Dr. Romani Dervasala. you ready? Let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm really excited about today's guest because every time I have someone that comes on who talks about healing from a narcissistic relationship, I get a lot of downloads. I I tend to get a lot of people who are interested in this and our guest today is an expert on it. She has a huge social media platform where she talks about this topic a lot. She's written a couple books, and we're going to get into it in just a second. But first, I wanted to make sure that I tell you that I am going to start a weekly live stream. I'm really excited about this. I haven't done it in what feels like 150 years. I'm going to be going live on Facebook, on my Facebook page, which is Your Kickass Life. My Instagram page, I'm at Hey Andrea Owen. Over there, and if you are a personal Facebook friend of mine, I'll be live over there. It starts on March sixth, twenty twenty four. If you're listening to this into the future, and it's going to be Wednesdays at noon Eastern Time, nine Pacific. Uh, I'm also going to be live on TikTok as well. I forgot about that. All at the same time. Wish me luck, you guys, with this technology. <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping it all goes just smoothly. And uh, yeah, each each week is going to have a topic. It might correspond with either a guest that I had on or a mini-sode that I did where I can, you know, I'm just going to expand on it. I'm going to take your questions. I can even have some of you come onto the live with me and maybe I can do some laser coaching. I don't know. It's just going to kind of happen as it happens. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. Another way to serve you and just really connect with you guys. I've been I've been missing you. I've been missing you. Have you been missing me? Uh all right. Let me let me tell you about oh, and one more thing. I have a couple openings. I think I might have two openings for coaching right now. So head on over to AndreaOwen.com slash coaching and you can read about the kind of client that I work with, see if it's a match for you. And there's an application right there. Okay, so coaching and live stream starting March 6th let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Dr. Ramani Durvasila is a licensed clinical psychologist in Los Angeles, California. Her academic research was focused on the impact of personality and personality disorders on health and behavior. She's the author of multiple books, including Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist and don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, entitlement, and Incivility, and her newest book, It's Not You, Identifying and Healing from Narcissistic People. So without further ado, here is Dr. Romani. Dr. Romani, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. Well, I'm always excited when someone has a new book coming out because I know it feels like a like a baby <laughs>
1: a little bit. Oh yeah, definitely. And we are in the last trimester here. So yeah. <laughs> We're
0: in the last yeah. trimester. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I, I I have had people come on and talk about relationships and I've had a couple people who we've touched on how to heal from narcissistic relationships or abuse. Like, you know, sort of what is that? But it's been a minute. So can we start? I would like to start kind of in the beginning. And can you let us know, like, what are the behaviors that you see the most often that are harmful in relationships? Whether the person perpetuating them, like, let's start from the very beginning, whether the person perpetu- perpetuating them is a, is a, a, you know, bona fide narcissist or not.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I'm even going to go one one step beyond your question, which is, in a way, it doesn't matter what the person's personality is, right? So it's I've always pushed that point, because I think there's so much confusion. The people are sitting there and analyzing at a granular level, is my partner narcissistic? And I'm thinking, you're asking the wrong question. You've really got to stay focused on these behaviors, because if these behaviors are consistently showing up, it doesn't matter what they are. Ultimately, these behaviors are what's going to harm you. And their personality is a statement on the fact that these behaviors are going to remain consistent. So personality in some ways is a context that tells you that it's always going to be here. It's like somebody built a house on a toxic dump site. You're always going to get sick living there. It doesn't matter what that house looks like. So it's, there's, there's a stability to it. The, the behaviors that are so problematic in. Any relationship, frankly, are doubting the reality and the feelings of the other person, creating a space where it's not safe for the other person to express needs and feelings. And that's done by shutting them down, basically invalidating those feelings, being dismissive of them, minimizing them, rage. And anger being a central core kind of communication style in the relationship, typically when the other person isn't getting their way, because that will often shut the other person in the relationship down. So the the antagonistic person in the relationship always has that kind of in their back pocket. If I don't like what's happening, I'm going to start raging. And if the other person is afraid of rage, which is the vast majority of people, they will be able to emotionally continue to abuse them. And so it's these kinds of behaviors where there's a tremendous power asymmetry. Anything that drives an asymmetry and power leaves one person in the relationship constantly feeling on their back foot. And these tactics, especially gaslighting, leave the person who actually isn't behaving badly wondering if it's them who's mm-hmm. behaving badly. And remember, too, that it's not a one-day thing. It's not just happening on the day one of the people in the relationship loses their job, okay? So that's a day they're not graceful, and they're snappy, and they're angry, and then by the end of that day, they say, I ha- I'm i so sorry. I had no right to behave like that. You've been nothing but supportive. If there's a quick making of amends, yeah. while that day may have been unpleasant, and that person needs to get it together and not do that again, that's not a narcissistic relationship. That's a bad day. And I think, and even, you know, listen, many narcissistic people are unfaithful in relationship or they engage in other kinds of betrayal behaviors. They're financially betraying. They're, they're sort of um, slippery with the truth kind of thing, right? And so what happens then is that a lot of people say, my partner cheated on me. He's narcissistic. I'll be like, slow down. Let's take this backwards. He cheated on you and that was a terrible thing to do but the context may not support narcissism so i think that the idea is that to really get focus on what are unacceptable behaviors in a relationship recognize them as unacceptable not justify them and make your decisions accordingly the more these behaviors are consistent and stable and happen on many many days and that even if there's even if there's good periods in between that ups the likelihood that this is a narcissistic person. So I think people are kind of barking up the wrong tree. They keep sort of saying, okay, entitled, arrogant, grandiose. They're going down the list. And because those things aren't as obvious as you would think – a vulnerable narcissistic person's grandiosity won't look the same way as a malignant person's or a, a, a grandiose person's. It looks different. So if you go by that, you're not trying to diagnose this person. You're looking for patterns that are unhealthy. The reason for the conversation about narcissism is to really put a finer point on how stable this is going to be. Because a lot of the whole relationship literature is, this can change. There's a way you can talk to this person. There's something that can be done. If narcissism's in the house, really there's not. So either you're going to adjust to the weather or you're going to be cold.
0: I love that we started here because I I have sort of seen, and I'm sure that you have too, that this has become a buzzword lately. Mm -hmm. The vernacular has been used so much more in even just, you know, like pop culture. So... And I wonder if people are using, you know, the average person trying to diagnose their partner and using that as an excuse to stay. So it's like, well, they don't check off this box. So they're not a narcissist. So maybe I can change this person when all of their behaviors are pretty terrible and that the person should should leave. Do you see this in your practice or in your work?
1: I see it in my work, right? Because I mean, I think p- listen, people use the buzzword because it's going to get eyes on them. It doesn't mean that they know how to use it correctly. And that's a real problem with this word because this is a heavy big personally I think wonderful word in the sense of it is so descriptive, but it's also very nuanced. And it's it's you you know it's interesting. You're bringing up the B-side of an of a of a record because the A-side is usually I don't, I I need this person to be narcissistic. I know they're narcissistic. And I'm thinking, wrong conversation. But the other side you're saying is they're not ticking enough boxes. So maybe I should stay. I have had that happen. Absolutely, especially in clinical practice. And the the conversation we have is then, I will then say to them, we don't even need, need to use this word. I see that these patterns are stable. And the one thing we know about human behavior is that it is stable. It is our, our past behavior tends to predict our future behavior unless something pretty cataclysmic happened in the middle. Things like trauma can certainly change a behavioral track or a head injury or something like mm-hmm. that. But beyond that, we tend to be relatively consistent beings. Why? Because of that personality again. So when somebody says to me, I don't know, maybe they're not narcissistic, I'm going to stick it out. First of all, I have no agenda for someone. If you want to stay in this relationship, you stay in this relationship. There's a lot of reasons people stay. Mm -hmm. But my response to that is, and what you're staying in is always going to be like this. So we're going to have to create workarounds for this. And that's usually the light bulb moment for them. They're like, oh, okay, well, no, 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 no. But I thought they were not. I said, it doesn't matter if they're narcissistic. I said, these behaviors are not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So... It's Again, I'm using the example of climate because I think it fits here, right? A place that's cold is cold. So a person says, hey, I want to move to Chicago, but I really want an outdoor swimming pool 12 months of the year, and I hate wearing coats. And I'm thinking, you know, this isn't going to work. So you move there and you try to live like that, you're going to freeze to death.
0: Yeah great analogy. Well, I, it's interesting because I'm, I'm, of course, thinking about my own life and I was in a long relationship from my late teens until I was 31. And that relationship, whether he was a narcissist or not, a lot of those behaviors, um, betrayal, lying, so much gaslighting. And this was in years before we even knew, like I knew what that word was. And it wasn't until years later where people were using it. I was like, oh my God, that's what was happening to me. I thought I was losing my mind. I was, I was being told I was crazy for even thinking he would cheat on me. Meanwhile, he was like living a double life and having, an affair, and and so what I learned was in that relationship is, and it might have been a chicken or egg situation. We both grew up and learned behaviors that weren't great, but I learned how to manipulate. I learned how to 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 engage in these behaviors in the relationship that were really gross to me, even when I was participating in them. And then when I got out, and I got remarried, and I got sober, and I started doing this work. And I really started listening to my personal therapists and, and marriage counselors and and learned how to, like you said, repair when I have screwed up to when I think about manipulating to try to get my way or because I'm scared, to not do that. Right. So I I do, I just want to say, like, I think people do change. They mature and evolve. Do you do you think that, you know, there are certain people where I don't know if this is a great question or not. But I'm like, I'm almost like over here defending myself because if someone looked at me when I was 25, they would have been like, she's kind of a narcissist. And I'd be like, you're not wrong. Like,
1: <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> let me ask you a question. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you a question. Like you said something really important. You said you still weren't sober, right?
0: Yeah, no. I okay. Was- Yeah. And I, even if I wasn't drinking a lot, I had like that alcoholic.
1: Okay. So let's break that down for a minute because addiction and alcoholism and substance use muddy the waters quite a bit. I don't know how familiar you are with 12 step terminology and all of that, but okay. So you're very familiar with the concept of the dry drunk, right? Yes. The dry drunk is just a narcissist, right? So the the big book, all of 12 step, if you read it front to back. Yeah. It is probably one of the best manuals out there on a person confronting their own narcissism. So part of the problem with sobriety management, relapse management, recovery in the long term is especially if you look at it from a quantitative perspective, we measure it as is a person no longer drinking or using? That's half the journey. It's like getting up to the top of a mountain and saying, I'm done. I'm like, no, 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 we got to get back down off of here. And that back down is to address all the stuff Right. All the stuff, the manipulation, the lying, the denial, the harm of others, the not taking accountability, the lack of taking responsibility. Step six, character defects. It's mm-hmm. all there. So if you look at it that way, a lot of folks who've gone through recovery don't bother with that piece. We have a lot of dry drunks walking out there. So one of the things I assess early in the game is, does this person have a history of addiction? Because I'm going to be coming at this from a different angle. Well, I, I we still we still search for what is the right treatment model for narcissism. I'm gonna be frank with you. Twelve step may be as good a model as we've got because there's this chronic going back into this need for showing up as a humble person, but without the buy-in of sobriety, without that sort of behavioral buy-in, it's a little tougher. And against the backdrop of an, of a disease of the disease of addiction, so I think that what I would argue, and am I'm, I'm gonna actually double down on my assertion that no, these patterns don't change is that what was talking in your 20s was an addict not a narcissist wow. mm-hmm. and when your addiction got resolved and you committed to recovery what happened was those proverbial dry drunk patterns lifted the step 6 got worked through yeah. you made the proper amends you kept that you kept that integrated and that sustained had you not been drinking had you not had you been a fully not using not drinking sober person and behaving like that i don't think we would be talking about your change right now
0: I don't think I would be talking to anybody about change, (laughs) Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm, Yeah,
0: let alone experts like you. I appreciate that so much. And I found myself getting emotional when you said that, because Mm -hmm. partly just validation of of what I have said over and over again here on this show is even if someone has struggled with any kind of substance, I I always say sobriety and recovery are two very different things.
1: Yes, they are very, very different. Yeah,
0: Very different. Getting sober for me was the easy part, like just quitting drinking. And that that wasn't even easy, but it was easier to me than, like you were saying, coming back down the mountain, like the actual work involved, the amends making, the noticing when I'm uh, behaving in ways that I don't want to, stopping myself before I'm about to bite back at someone who's bit me and understanding like, that's not how I want to show up. I'm going to have to, I'm going to end up apologizing for this if I say it.
1: Right. So then let's throw something else in there, right? Because we've talked about addiction. Then there's the piece, like you said, I want to bite back when someone bites at me. Part of this also becomes trauma response. And this is where the water gets even more muddy. You know, there's big T and there's small T trauma, you know, and and obviously a lot of the betrayal, relational trauma is on a continuum. For some people, what happened during childhood was a day after day after day of a being unseen, unheard manipulation. And for other people, it was, you know, we'd consider f- physical and sexual violence and abuse. Obviously, th- those th- it, we don't compare traumas, we don't compare pair pains, but we're going to see different impacts. However, the way we show up in relationships is often a safety response, right? We're trying to seek safety or we're trying to seek attachment. And ideally those two go together. So the biting back is often a way of seeking safety. Now the same argument, however, could be made for the narcissistic person. And a lot of people make that argument that narcissism may in fact be in part a trauma response. I get that. I would say 25% of my practice for a long time was narcissistic clients. Some with histories of trauma, some with histories of addiction, some with neither. And so when they had neither, they were the hardest clients to treat. When they had these other stories, we had other places to get in there, other things to focus on. However, you still got to show up. You got to do the work. And what happens is the other people around the narcissistic person are saying, I see that, like you just said, I bite back or I withdraw. Many, many more people who go through narcissistic abuse are overregulated and they withdraw. They're afraid they are um they don't they they start believing what's said to them and that's the insidiousness of narcissistic abuse it's not just the day in and day out enduring the nonsense it's the internalization that i'm a bad person and the healing is no you're not a bad person a person was telling you you're a bad person and we got to stop listening to them that's and you, whether you stop listening to them by ending the relationship or disengaging from it that's a different conversation but I do think we have to account for how do people stay safe in relationships. And a lot of what happens in a narcissistic relationship is this really toxic dance of the narcissistic person having one motivation and one motivation only, which is power, dominance, and control. That's what they want. That's what a relationship is to them. The other person may want attachment, connection, and safety. Those is one person's playing chess, one person's playing checkers. It doesn't work. Same board, different games. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we got to take a quick break.
0: When we come back, I want to ask you about trauma bonding. We'll be right back. slash Andrea. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Andrea. Masterclass.com slash Andrea. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. You can use Earnin for anything you need to: therapy visits, rent, or even extra self help books. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, "When I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind." All right, we're back. Dr. Romani's book is called "New Book." You have several. It's it's not you identifying and healing from narcissistic people. Can we talk about trauma bonding? Mm -hmm. How does someone know that they're experiencing that?
1: One of the ways, one of the couple of tells, you know, I mean, it's 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 a complicated dynamic, but a couple of the tells are things like you you're constantly justifying and because you're constantly justifying and people don't want to hear it anymore. You might even start kind of telling sort of portraying your relationship as better than it is. Right. So people, so you can kind of keep it located in a better place, even though, you know, if you share the real truth, people would say, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. People who are trauma bonded keep having the same arguments over and over again. They believe the false promises That the narcissistic person makes, they, they, you know, one thing that often tells me that person's in a trauma bonded relationship. It's sort of like therapist hack. When a person is describing really, really dysfunctional patterns in a relationship to me over and over again, but can't get out and claim that ah, no, 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 I'm I really, really love them. I do. I really love them. I'll say, okay, no, I'm I'm never the one to sit here and doubt anyone's love's a very subjective experience. Can you tell me why you love them? And when a person's trauma bonded, invariably their answer is, okay, okay, wait, give me a second. You don't, you know, uh, yeah, no, it's like this, I, I can't really describe, I don't know, there's no words. Like I, I just sort of like have, it's this, I don't know, it's like this feeling. It's, it's like, I don't know, it's like this connection. This That's not an feeling. answer. Mm-hmm. If you ask a healthy person that question, they'll say, you know, we get each other. It's, we, have, you know, we have similar interests, shared values. They believe in me. The answers are much more healthy, collaborative. They make sense. The person who's trauma bonded actually cannot pull out anything but the most ephemeral, ephemeral, magical reason for it. Then when we're looking at people who are trauma bonded, another big tell is when when a person who's trauma bonded even does visualization about the relationship ending or getting out of it, they'll literally say, I feel a sense of panic. You know, when it really comes to go time, that this is, they've had the 150th argument about the same thing, one more episode of gaslighting and on and on and on. Like, I got to get out of this. So they uncover one more lie or whatever it is. When the moment comes, they're like, I'm going to get together with them Friday. I'm going to tell them this is done. They'll say... I literally feel like all the oxygen is being pulled out of my lungs. There's a physiological response. And trauma is a physiological phenomenon. So none of that is any wonder. And I think that the challenge with the trauma bond is, in some ways, it's more comfortable to stay in the harmful relationship than it is to navigate the unknown territory of getting out because it's like you're inviting a panic attack, which is really not what anyone wants to do. And in the weeks, the days, the weeks and the months after a person ends a toxic, narcissistic, antagonistic, call it whatever you want relationship, they will say, I was bumping into walls. I thought it was going to be easier. And they'll say, interestingly, in the day to day, it kind of was because I wasn't having to listen to them. Again, in these relationships, breakups are tough because the narcissistic person tends to be, tends to be quite antagonistic even after mm-hmm. the person goes. But even taking that out, they'll say it wasn't sort of a magic pill until it was. And they'll say, this is my nervous system slowly returned to baseline, but it is because it's so visceral. People find it hard to leave these relationships and trauma bonds are created. Trauma bond is, there's a a lot of people again, just like narcissism is misused. Gaslighting is misused. Trauma bonding is misused as a word. Trauma bonding is not the relationship between two people who have been through trauma. I want to clear that up right away. Mm -hmm. A trauma bond is a relation is a bond that feels incredibly intense as like I said, almost like these people say magical, but this intense connection created by the alternation of good and bad in a relationship. So it's the the good days are exciting. It might be good sex. It might be big laughter. It might be a great Saturday night. And the bad days are that chronic death by a thousand cuts. It's the invalidation, the minimization, the walking on eggshells, that you have to do it just right for them. And so you're constantly going between these two poles. During the bad times, people use the good times to justify it. The problem is the bad times are so unhealthy because people say, well, isn't that any relationship, good and bad? No. I mean, in any relationship, you might be arguing about a dishwasher, but a person isn't eviscerating you as a human being and telling you you shouldn't be alive or saying something horrible to you mm-hmm. because you say something like that. It's not that. It's the person saying, oh, you didn't empty the dishwasher again. And the other person saying, I know, I know, I forgot. It's That's a, that's sort of like within the realm of normal. This is the oppositionality becomes ag- aggressive and rageful and, and people feel unheard and unsafe. It's very different. Dynamic and it is pretty consistent in all narcissistic relationships because they're so unhealthy. If there was no trauma bond, most of these relationships wouldn't last.
0: Oh, uh, it made my stomach hurt because I was thinking about <laughs> my former relationship, and and I, the more I learn about this, the more it's clear that that there was trauma bonding taking place. And the way I describe it is what you were saying about you know the ups and downs. Mm-hmm, is it, mm-hmm. I, I felt like I would get you know, put on a rainbow and just, you know, like flying high Mm -hmm. and then getting slammed down back onto earth over and over and over again. And the thing that was also interesting about that is that I trusted that
1: cycle more than I trusted my own instincts. I think that's so well put, so the kind of rainbow and slam down. Rebecca Humphreys is somebody who, she's a, a, an um, an actor in the UK. She had written a book and about being gas gaslighted in the public eye, like by very in a very public kind of a scandal. And she put it so beautifully. She said, he would push me off the top of a 100-story building and catch me just as I passed the first story and was about to hit the ground. Like, it was the most beautiful, eloquent characterization of this is that that's the dynamic. And what they do in a trauma-bonded relationship is it's often a relationship where that person both breaks you down and puts you back together. And that really creates an incredibly unbreakable bond. That sort of break you down, put you back together dynamic is something we tend to see in more severe relationships. The vast majority of people in narcissistic relationships, it's not as severe. It's sort of, again, this daily indignity of these relationships. And so, and it's not even so severe. That other people notice it, right? It's not someone screaming at you in the middle of dinner. In fact, not narcissistic people are often really, really good at having a great public face mm-hmm. and a really awful in the car. Like the narcissistic abuse, I think probably so much of it happens in a car where no one else is around. You can't memories. get out. Mm-hmm. You can't run away. All of that. So that's the the uh, the the. Public private disconnect too is that the good mask is on for other people. So other people are telling the person, wow, you're so lucky or you have such a nice relationship. And the person's dying inside mm-hmm. and they, f- but yet they don't feel ready to out how dysfunctional right. the relationship is or they feel loyal to it. And you can't. You can't underestimate the power of loyalty because we feel loyal to the people we love, whether they're family or friends or partners. And that loyalty means that a lot of people, I always call it an iceberg, they suffer for years. And by the time they start talking, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, how long has this been happening?
0: Yeah. And and thank you for that. And I, I, I think it, you know, it creates a power dynamic as well. And I was loyal, not only to him, but I was loyal to that cycle. And like, I can't emphasize enough like how much I trusted that cycle. And it was as if my body and my brain, no matter how bad it got, when we were in one of those lows, like, you know, if I'm falling from the building, I trusted without a shred of doubt Mm -hmm. that, that catch that, that high that was about to come was better than any drink or drug I could ever take. That's what's frightening to me about our propensity as humans to get caught up in in those types of relationships. And so, you know, my heart goes out to anyone who's in it or who's who's been in it. Which, which brings me to like, I want to ask you, because in my experience, you know, this person and I broke up 17 years ago, and I recently received some correspondence from this person. And I had a visceral reaction yeah. when I saw the name. And, you know, of course I have the reaction Then I, my next thought was like, that's interesting that my body still, ha- you know, it was like the pit of my stomach, just like a full physiological reaction. And some, someone might say, cause when I've talked about it online on social media, people are like, how are you not over this by now? Like how, how many years ago? And you're still talking about it. And I, and I do feel like a little, like a little wash of shame when I get those comments, but at the same time, I'm like, I know I'm not the only one who still struggles with the the visceral feelings of it and the thoughts that come up. So how does one, tr- I mean, I'm sure no contact is a big help, <laughs> mm-hmm. but can you talk about sort of the aftermath is like when someone does walk away from one of these relationships, like what can they expect and what's helpful for them?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I want to say something about no contact. It's, you know, no contact is funny, right? There's there's no contact and there's no contact. And what that what I mean by that is it's what we were talking about before, even with sobriety, right? There's the person who stops drinking, but is still behaving in all of those, if you will, those ways. There's people who go no contact, but they are still in it in their head, right? The, the, the trauma bonded, that, as you call it, the visceral experience isn't done for them. And then there are actually people who didn't go no contact, but they've done the work right? They're very aware of how this is being held in their body. They know how to ground themselves. They have realistic expectations, radical acceptance. It's not to say that hurtful hurtful words won't still hurt them. Obviously they do. We still have that, but it's not under their skin, if you will, in the same way. All of that said, you know, it's it it's so saddens me to hear that somebody would shame you for saying, you know, that saying I still I still have this feeling, yeah. and they tell you you're well, not the internet. Over it. You know, <laughs> the internet. I mean, the, the, the internet is a narcissist. If the internet was a person, <laughs> it would be a narcissist. And so, it, it, I would hazard to guess you are over it. And I think a lot of people get confused about that physiological response. Remember what we've learned about trauma when we look at Judith Herman's and Bessel van der Kolk's and Janina Fisher's work it's implicitly held. It's held, it's not held in our talky-talky part, right? It's mm-hmm. held in our feely-feely part. Yeah. And as a result, you don't look at that email and say, I can't believe, and you don't articulate a thought, you feel something in your stomach. And you share, and when you share that with the world, they don't get that. But I, I mean, anyone who's been through trauma or a narcissistic relationship would fully get that. There was a point in time where this relationship represented, like you said, not only the sort of rainbow highway that sort of ne- that sort of ended in a gravel road, but also it was not a safe place. Right. And as much as your mind engaged in the rationalizations, no, this is great, this is good, we're good, it's great. It's, I'm rationalized, rationalized, justify, justify, your body held it as unsafe. Mm-hmm. So when the memory when the memory comes back or the contact comes back, Your mind is like, I'm glad that's over. Mm -hmm. But your body is like unsafe, unsafe, unsafe. And there's this alarm ringing, right? And that's the sign. Your body is telling you something that your mind sort of figured out in a very different way. In a way, this is why I say that the mind often gaslights the body because it's always like, no, 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 it's all, it's all okay. And the body's like, mm. but the that implicit me- that implicit memory doesn't even have words to it. It's held, it's felt, and that pops out, and that's a reminder. It's not that you're not over it; you are over it. But our bodies are really, and our sympathetic nervous systems are magnificent in how. They hold on and they're also harmful and how they hold on to that which harmed us. Because even if the thing is no longer harmful, it still signals us in the same way. And all we can do is receive ourselves with gentleness. I often tell clients, talk to yourself like your kid, like, hey, hey, it's okay. Like, this is, this is gone. This is done. And, but I get why you're scared. And we can, instead of saying, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you over him? We can have a very different conversation with that sort of vulnerable part of ourselves. Yeah.
0: Okay. We need to take one more break. When we get back, I want to um, say one more thing about this and then talk about codependency. We'll be right back. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. regarding what you just said I, I love all of that and also the way I describe it and you know you've obviously put it so more much more eloquently is that when people say that like how are you not over it I I say I am over over him like you know I, I'm very yeah. aware like I don't want to yeah. be with this person I'm not in love with this person anymore. I think that my body isn't over the event hmm mm-hmm. that those were mm-hmm. two very different things mm-hmm. and by event i mean like the abuse that happened um the way that we split up it was very dramatic and traumatic and so that's how i describe it which sounds a lot exactly like how you described it
1: i think most people are over the person mm-hmm. and i you know I, and i think we you know we all use our language you're saying i'm not over the event i mean i would say for some of my clients would say i'm not over the experience of this and yes. so That's why so many survivors have rumination, right? Because you play it out over and over again. Rumination is not necessarily a bad thing. Where rumination becomes a problem is when there's no solution. But when a person comes out of one of these relationships, to me, rumination is sort of the final off-gassing, sort of let it go. Because this was not a normal, safe experience. And when things aren't normal or safe, they kind of get stuck in our heads. Because again, we're trying to solve the unfixable problem. But we 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 do. We regret... This experience, and we regret, like like the disruption and attachment, the loss of safety. These are very very primal kinds of experiences. Because somebody's not coming at you with a weapon or isn't violent, a lot of people are saying, "What are you saying? You weren't safe? Come on! Like it's not like they were." Then, and in fact, people will take offense. They'll say, "I know him. He's not a dangerous guy," mm-hmm. and they forget that the word safety. It means two things. Yes, there's physical safety, but there's also psychological safety. And we underestimate that because when that gets and these, these relationships undermine that constantly because it's even as simple as. I don't know how to show up. I don't know how to be. Do I be cheerful with them? Do I be quiet with them? Do I be solicitous? Like you're literally playing this game where you're thinking, how do I show up so I don't get raged at, screamed at, manipulated? So it's not authentic. Mm -hmm. It's performative and at best transactional so you can survive. That's what I mean by a loss of psychological safety. You don't get to be you.
0: Okay. Okay. Thank you for for that extra bit of information. And so, how do like, how does codependency play a role in all of this? Because we've talked a lot about I've had a lot of experts on here talking about codependency specifically.
1: Codependency is a tricky model when we're talking about narcissistic relationships. I mean, remember the origins of the codependency model around the 1950s. Again, just as, you know, our, our conversations about alcohol and substance use and addiction were kind of coming up in a different way, codependency became part of that conversation. And it really reflected the sort of harmful behaviors that a person in a relationship with a person living with an addict engages in, often... It, often um. Getting their self-esteem from the highs and lows, like a sober day means that the other person, the codependent person as it was, is good. Mm-hmm. And then when the person wasn't sober or was raging or something like that, they were bad. So okay. their entire sort of self was linked to that person. There, there can even be, for example, a unwillingness to seek help. For codependent people that the maintenance of the, of the dynamic becomes its own kind of living, breathing thing. And again, so much identity gets derived from that relationship, right? It is also not unusual for codependent people to also share in whatever the psychiatric or addictive profile of the other person is also participate in substance use or share whatever other mental health problems, like two people with personality issues getting into a relationship. It's a tricky framework for people experiencing narcissistic relationships because clinically, I have to say, we're so unwilling to call these relationships what they are. We're so tiptoeing on eggshells. Let's not say anything that's going to hurt the manipulative person's feelings. Mm-hmm. And that's the therapist talking. I'm like, why don't you just call this what it is? It's unacceptable. And I understand you, they have a backstory and they had of this and I get all that. But at the surface of it, the top of this da- damn iceberg is unacceptable. And so we have not been willing to do that in toxic relationships. And what happens is a significant proportion of survivors of these so-called narcissistic relationships, I would say 60 to 70 percent, once they're given very clear education on what this relationship is about, they're like, are you kidding me? And remember, this is coming up in a different way. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing this pre-internet, let me put it that Mm -hmm. way, where there wasn't a thousand TikTok people, where people yammering on, my boyfriend cheated, he's a narcissist, five reasons this, four reasons that. You actually, there was no way to get this information before. So unless you got lucky and had a therapist who could point it out, these were people who were bumping into walls, who were being told they were unforgiving, who were being told that relationships are compromised. And then when they got the playbook, we're like, no, 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 no which very few of us still do and say, this is a personality and Mm -hmm. more above all else, this is not going to change. This is this relationship. Some people would leave my practice, come back 10 years later, 10 years and say, okay, I wish I'd taken a bet with them. They'll say, yep, not one thing changed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel so sad for them, but that was their process. They had to figure it out that way. So I don't consider it codependency when psychoeducation is going to turn the ship around. That defies everything we know about codependency, which is a very, very entrenched sort of a pattern. And I would argue codependency also has its roots in a trauma response. So since that's many people in adult narcissistic relationships don't have a childhood pattern, Uh, past what they do though is a steady diet of nonsensical disney films that tell them um, rom-coms that tell them what relationships are look like that who choose partners on the basis of a checklist all of that that's how people end up in these relationships but when they're educated and they're told about it they don't stick around some do and some would argue that trauma bonding has some shared variance with codependency, but they are distinct constructs.
0: I, I I sort of chuckled to myself when you said the thing about, you know, 10 years later someone comes to your practice and say, like, this person didn't change. In my relationship, we we were together for 10 years before we even got married. And I thought that getting married would change him. And like, okay, he's gonna settle down. And and to be fair, we we both kind of calmed down a little bit. And I think that just came with, you know, we turned 30, we weren't partying quite as much anymore. And after we split, it was, you know, because I found out about an affair. I was at a grief group and I was telling my story and there was a woman who was who, you know, she was a solid maybe like 15 or so years, my senior. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was crying and saying, I really thought that getting married, things would change. And I really wanted to have children with him. Mm -hmm. And here I am, you know, like feeling sorry for myself. And she, she came up to me afterwards and she said, I want you to know that, I have a very I have a story very similar to to yours, and I was married to my husband for twenty mm. years. And we have three children together, and I am here because he did not change. Yep. I really think that you know he wouldn't have changed and if you would have had children with him, so i I will never forget her mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. and she was just fresh from hers too, yeah. and i i I had that overwhelming feeling of I could be her. In 20 yeah. years, if, yep. if I had stayed or, you know, the circumstances were different, we would have stayed and had children together. So I appreciate you saying that and to that anonymous woman, wherever she is. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you so much for this everyone dr Romani's book is it's not you identifying and healing from narcissistic people so i love a book i love a self-help book with a solution not just talking about the problem Yeah,
1: no 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 yeah i've I've already written the one that's descriptive so this is the you know and and, i mean the work the the work isn't easy though right it really is about seeing it clearly and and then really diving into figuring out who you are separate from this person these relationships sort of overtake us envelop us you know and so it's almost like shaking off the wreckage and saying who am i separate from this and once you can figure that out even if you can't get out of the relationship and some people can't you can at least recognize there is a you separate from them
0: so is there anything that you want to say I know we covered a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) is there anything Mm -hmm. that you want to say that you want to circle back to to underscore before we close up um, in order for you to feel complete
1: yeah, I mean, I'm so glad. I almost want to go back to where we began, which is this idea of, you know, we we talk so much about toxic relationships, narcissistic relationships, trauma-bonded relationships, call it what you will. We often don't talk about what's healthy. And I think that that's another place people are stuck. Vast majority of folks I've worked with said, I actually don't know. No one ever told me. I was like, I was on a clock. Somebody said, okay, he has a job. I suppose that makes him marriable. He did buy me a flowers once. People's bars are set really low in terms of what qualifies as healthy. And I think that what that makes, that makes it more difficult to figure out what is unhealthy. And if you grew up with manipulation and other you know, sort of tactics like that as a child, you don't even know. You don't even know what constitutes somebody showing up as a decent human being. And some people will even say, if they're trauma bonded in relationships from childhood, will say, I kind of felt bored with the kind of steady as she goes, you know, we were sort of, there were no big volatile fights and, Mm -hmm. and it was just sort of steady, steady, steady. And I was just speaking with someone very recently. And she said, you know, I came out of a narcissistic relationship of 25 years, kids, marriage, the whole thing, and now started dating again and met a lovely, lovely, lovely guy. And, and she said, I have to talk myself down when I feel bored Mm -hmm. because it is boring. And -hmm. she said, and it's wonderful. Right. And so it's like weather that never changes it's always a perfect sunny 78 degrees and i want and she's but she said i realize now had i not had that 25 years of hell had i met this man younger i would have left him mm-hmm. and so in some ways there's a real beauty and healing from some any form of adversity because people who can really hold on to that and recognize that they can write a new an act 2 if you will but you got to remember act 1 to carry the story And so that's a big part of it. So I just, I just want anyone going to these relationships to know healing is very, very possible. It takes a minute, but it's not, I mean, I've seen it happen more often than not. So I just really want to infuse people with a sense of hope as -hmm. they leave this episode.
0: I appreciate that, and I I think I can I can attest to that as someone who's who's continues to heal from the the, the multi layers that are on it, and you get mm-hmm. into new relationships and sobriety, and it can all play a part in the healing. So, I appreciate you and your work so much. We will put a link to the show notes um, for the book and your right. social media. Is there anywhere specific around the book that you want people to go? Anything they should know?
1: Yeah, just I would say go to drramani.com, my website, definitely order the book, order it anywhere you want. And, um, and then we have all kinds of stuff. There's reading guides, we'll have, you know, other sorts of additional giveaways, all of that, just go to our website, follow us on social media. You know, it's a big push to sell it. But then we're going to keep talking about it as people get to read it and really reflect on how it applies to their lives.
0: Thank you for doing that for for my listeners and for everyone who who will get so much out of this book. Listeners, thank you so much for your time. I know how precious it is, and I appreciate that you choose to spend it with me and my guests. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I would be so incredibly grateful, if you haven't done so already, if you could leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Super easy if you already listen to your shows over there, Um, but if you don't, or maybe you have the app on your phone, but you listen to the show on a different app, if you could leave a review for this show, it matters so much. I wish I could express how much it matters. I also wish that it didn't matter so much, but alas, it does. So if you haven't already, please go review and rate the show. It would mean so much to me. And thank you so much. I hope you have an amazing day.